You are listening to a Drishti Point podcast. I'm Farhan Azrali and I'm here with Swami Mukti Bodhananda. Swami Mukti Bodhananda was born in Melbourne, Australia and lives in Australia and had a very early calling to yoga at the age of 12. At the age of 17, she left for India and spent 10 years at the feet of her mentor and guru, Paramhansa Swami Satyananda Sarasvati, who was a direct disciple of Swami Shivananda of Rishikesh. Swami Bhukti Bodhananda was initiated into the order of sannyasin, dedicating her life to the teaching and practice of all aspects of yoga. She was given the title Yogacharya and she is here to speak with us about a very important text in the practice of yoga and that is the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. We, this is the first in a series of three interviews about the Hatha Yoga Pradipika and in preparation for her visit to Vancouver in September. Our first interview, we're going to speak about the alchemy of yoga. So first, I'd like to welcome you, Swami Mukti Bodhananda. Thank you. Hello. And alchemy of yoga. Um, alchemy is defined as the transformational process used in medieval times to transform base metals into gold and used as a metaphor in spiritual life to transform the human heart into a heart of divine love for all. Can you help us understand how is yoga transformational? How does it transform us physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually? Well, the transformation starts to take place with the practice. And so when we practice the various techniques of the Hatha Yoga, then we are able to have an inner experience. And the desire then arises to continue this process, to further the process. So there are two aspects here. There is the desire to change, the desire to experience something more, and then the practice. So when we have both of these elements, then the change takes place. And usually uh, people will come to yoga through the need for physical balance. Most people in the modern day feel stressed and so this is quite a common reason for coming to practice the physical aspect of yoga postures called asana. But after a period of practice, you find that the body's feeling better, of course, but the emotions become more stable, the mind becomes more stable. And so as you further your practice, then you do pranayama breathing techniques and you find that this has a direct influence on mind and the emotions and you can bring those experiences then into day-to-day -day life because once you've found that by slowing the breath down, the mind quietens, just in the workplace also, you become aware the breath is coming more rapidly, you're feeling agitated, so you have a technique, a tool to slow the breath down and pacify the mind. And so the process of the yoga is not just sitting for a few minutes or one hour doing postures and breathing and some meditation, the experience is taken into your day-to-day -day life. And so it's a continual process. 
It's not an isolated experience to a particular part of your life. It's continual throughout the day and throughout the night. And so these practices are working physiologically on the nervous system, on the muscles, on the hormones, the endocrine system, and they are having an impact on the brain. So the experiences of life that happen are also having an impact on the brain. And this is really what we are working on. We are working on our brains. The body is the vehicle to work on the brain. And through that, we work on our inner selves, the mind, the emotions. So in the beginning, you spoke about the desire for transformation. Um, I imagine that desire sometimes is sparked by a personal crisis or uh, some kind of major challenge that forces us to look at life a little bit differently. Is that one of the, um, or does this desire come from just the desire to, to know ourselves and understand our reality and, and connect with what we might call God? Unconsciously, the desire is coming to understand ourselves. At the more superficial level, the desire starts and, and is triggered by a life experience where uh, you might be unhappy in a particular relationship and so you're looking to solve that problem as to how do you reconnect with that person or do you just move away and not involve yourself with that person? It might be a situation within the family. It might be a situation at work with a work colleague or with somebody above you at work. And so the, the spark is triggered by needing to understand how to manage a personal relationship and as you do that, as you look for the answers, as you seek out methods, you're actually looking at yourself and how to manage your own mind in these particular situations because we know it doesn't work when we try to control others. And this is the beauty about when you come to yoga, it is self-empowering and you find ways to manage the internal internal emotions and direct them into the world. And so as you continue on that path of seeking out your answers, you answer that inner question about yourself and delving into yourself and who are you really in there, inside of you. Uh, there are so many layers within us and in that quest of understanding the external world, we're actually going inwards and understanding our inner self. Now you mentioned um, one of the ways that we can balance the mind is through pranayama and breathing. Is there a difference between breath and pranayama? Are they the same thing? What is prana? So prana is the energy force that is driving all of nature. Prana is a generic word to mean energy and it's also the, the individual's energy, the prana within the physical body. So it's your vital physical energy force and the word is actually indicating something that's very subtle. 
we have physical and mental energy uniting in the body at specific areas, creating light. But the most subtle part of prana is, for example, when you look at the light bulb, there is the light there within the bulb, but the whole room and the whole area is lit up. So the prana is that more subtle aspect of the body lighting up and lighting up the area around you, lighting up the area within you. So prana is something very subtle. We can feel the body's heat if you extend your palms forward and place them close to your cheeks, not touching the cheeks, just close, you'll feel the heat of your hands. And so this is the physical heat you're feeling. The prana is the subtle aspect of that heat where you have heat, you have vibration and you have light. If you could see that light, you would be perceiving the prana. So what happens in pranayama is that you are expanding this subtle vital energy force. Ayama means to expand. Often the word pranayama is explained as prana and yama to control. That's one interpretation. The other interpretation is prana, ayama, to expand the prana. And we do this through breathing techniques in particular in Hatha Yoga. So with the pranayama breathing technique, you can either slow the breath down, you can hold the breath, and ultimately in yoga it's said that by holding the breath, either after breathing in and holding or breathing out and holding, that this is where the true pranayama occurs, where you truly expand the body's vital physical energy. We can also do other breathing techniques where we control the breath in through the right nostril, out through the left, in left, out right. And this is influencing the brain hemisphere activities. As you breathe through your nose, the little cilia, the hairs in the nose move and this sends nervous impulses to the brain. So if you're breathing in your right nostril, it will influence the left brain hemisphere if you're breathing in your left nostril, it will influence the right brain hemisphere. And in this way, as we control the breath in the nostrils, the aim ultimately is to balance the brain hemisphere activity, to create an alpha brainwave rhythm where we are neither extroverted nor introverted. We're sitting in between those states. And the purpose of this is for developing meditation. In terms of worldly life and living in the world, when I say worldly life, uh, we need more functioning in the right brain hemisphere sometimes. We need more functioning in the left brain hemisphere sometimes so that we can either be more practical or be more creative like that. Uh, in terms of yoga, we want the balance between that. And so in this particular pranayama where we do alternate nostril breathing, we're actually creating a different effect to holding the breath. And we create a different effect once again if we do rapid breathing. 
But ultimately, all these different techniques will lead us to a quiet state of mind, which in turn quietens the energies of the body. So in yoga, it said when you quieten the energies, the mind will be focused for your meditation. Now let's come back to, you mentioned the subtle, the prana as a subtle thing, and you mentioned subtle energy centers. Are these what's known as the chakras? Yes, that's great. And how can we understand um, what may inhibit or block that vital energy from moving through the chakras um, unimpeded? So there are various uh, things that influence your flow of energy and the chakra centers and the influences can either be from an external force being the environment for example and living in an environment that's unsuitable for your body then the energy is not going to flow as freely. The influence can also be from the type of foods that you eat. If you're eating food that doesn't suit your body and it's not conducive for your health, then that creates blockages of energy. And then your mental state. If you're thinking uh, negative thoughts and if your mind is depressed, this will also block the energy. So we can look at various different aspects as to what creates blockages uh, in those, at those different levels. It's easy to approach the physical aspects first and looking at the environment so that you dress suitably and not exposing yourself to extremes of weather, uh, looking at the diet. And while in yoga it's important that we have a balanced diet, it's also important that we eat according to our body needs and there's a lot of uh, information about diet in our society these days. So we can look at the particular foods according to yoga and Ayurveda, or we can look at foods according to uh, different Western systems. But the, the important thing here is moderation, everything in moderation so that then there are no blockages within the body. Now, you mentioned that we're speaking about the Hatha Yoga Pradipika and you're coming to Vancouver soon to teach about that. And you mentioned the pranayam. Are there other techniques and um, how can we understand what a Kriya is and what effect it has on a physical level and on a subtle level? Yes, there are many, many techniques. And yoga is widely known as postures, asana, and... These days we are becoming interested in the pranayama. Mudra is a gesture. So there are gestures that can be done with the hands. These redirect nervous impulses in a very specific way to the brain to create an effect on the physical body as well as the mind. Then there are bandha locks of specific muscles. We can lock the pelvic floor muscles. We can contract them. We can lock the abdominal area, pulling in the abdomen, and we can lock the throat area, lowering the head. And so by doing these three locks, 
then we direct the energy, the nervous impulses in the body in a very specific way. Again, back to the brain. Everything leads back to the brain. So you have your asana, your pranayama, your mudra, your bandha, and then you have various kriyas. Kriya is an action. It's also known as a karma. Karma is an action. So the actions in hatha yoga are cleansing the body. We do various internal cleansing techniques and water to flush the digestive system. Some of the practices involve cleaning the nose with saline water. Then you have the other karmas that don't involve drinking uh, water and that is of, for example, steady gazing. You can gaze steadily at the inner part of a candle flame. You can stare gazing steadily at a single point. Whatever you're gazing at, ultimately what you're doing is steadying the rapid eye movements which has an impact on the brain. And so we practice this technique of tratak for the purification of unnecessary thoughts in the mind. And the other kriyas that we practice are churning of the abdominal muscles. And there are particular ways to learn these techniques, of course. There is the practice of rapid breathing, which is uh, called kapalbhati, meaning to light up the frontal lobes of the brain. And as we learn this very specific technique, again, it helps empty the mind of unnecessary thoughts. So these type of kriyas, also known as karmas, are very important in the modern day for clearing out the mind so that we can leave the work behind, leave our workplace behind, come home and relax and to enjoy and to have fun. Some of us are fortunate to have fun at work, but a lot of people are stressed out at work. So these karmas uh, will assist in this way. There are other practices in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika that involve the combination of many practices of asana, pranayama, mudra, ban together and they also are known as a kriya and they, they are for the direct purpose of inducing meditation within a few minutes. So these are the various techniques in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika for clearing the mind, relaxing the mind, steadying the mind and then going into a deeper state of awareness. Consistently what what has been coming up in all of these answers is the effect of these techniques on the brain and the effect of these techniques on the mind and steadying the mind for meditation. So how can we understand um, the what comes then when when the mind is steady when the brain is lit up in the in the right way then is that a platform for some experience or some level of consciousness that we could define as yoga 
Yes, it is. And how can we understand doing the practice? It's only when you do the practice and you have the experience can you understand. And I can explain to you about chocolate, but you can only understand when you eat the chocolate. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with the hatha yoga. You can only understand when you do it, when you have the personal experience. And as you practice different techniques, you have different experiences. And as we are all individual, we all have individual different experiences. That's at the forefront of practice. As you continue on, you'll get to a stage where everyone has similar experiences. Because before we have similar experiences, we need to empty the mind of the various impressions that we've accrued throughout our life. And so we all have different impressions. We all have different responses and reactions to the situations of life. When we get that out of the way, then, yes, we reach a particular platform where we can say there is a generic experience. Mm -hmm. And the Hatha Yoga Pradipika takes you from that, that very beginning right through to the latter stages. And how important is it to have a teacher or a guru teaching these techniques or uh, understanding the types of techniques that are suitable for an individual person? It's very important because in any book that you read, there is always some information that is not written down. And when you have a teacher, then you can ask questions about your personal experience. It's a bit like reading a book of how to drive a car. You jump in the car and you have the technical knowledge, but when you get in the car, you find you're having other experiences. So you need a teacher to help you drive the car. You have two people in the car when you first learn to drive. And it's the same with yoga. You need a teacher who's already been through the process and knows the obstacles that can uh, arise along this path and then can assist you as an individual. And when we speak of a teacher, are we speaking of a teacher in a Western sense or are we speaking of a guru in an Eastern sense or um, what's the difference? When we first start, have a local teacher that can assist with the asana, the pranayama, the mudra, the bandha. When you have deeper questions about the practices, then you look for a teacher that can inspire you along that path, the inner path. And because I have met my guru, because I've experienced guru, I will always say that having the, the guru is beneficial. However, not everyone uh, has that opportunity. And there are different types of guru. Loosely, the word guru means teacher. But if we look at the word, it means someone who is able to take you from ignorance to knowledge, from darkness to light. And so to follow any path, we need a teacher when it comes to the internal self and understanding the inner self, then we look for what we call Satguru, the guru that can enlighten us about 
inner truth. Is it true that when the disciple is ready, the guru appears, or when, when the student is ready, is it is it a process like that, that we could have trust and faith that our own readiness is what brings a guru to us? Yes, this is a very interesting question and a very interesting path. Uh, I wasn't consciously looking for a guru, but the inner the inner inquiry was there. And so um, I think I was fortunate my life, the two coincided. It, it, it is a hard question to answer. I think uh, if the inner readiness is there, then this situation can unfold. But I have met many people who say they are seeking out their teacher, their inner guru, um, and haven't found the person yet. So whether that person is really ready or not, who am I to say really? I think um, if we are fortunate and we're in the right place at the right time, then if we find an external guru, a guru in the physical, in the flesh, then it makes life a lot easier. You can have a guru who is not in the flesh and I think that path is a little bit more challenging because the intellect comes in the way when we're communing with inner guru and we're listening to the inner instructions, sometimes our intellect can cloud that information or sometimes our own desires can cloud that information. Whereas if you have a physical person in front of you and you get direct instruction, then there is clarity. <laughs> and still there is misunderstanding. <laughs> so, yes, this is a difficult question to answer and... Uh, I think if if you are seeking, then this is the first step. Um, thank you for sharing about your own experience with that. Um, it always it always reminds me of the moment that I met my guru, and that was <clears throat> the most fortunate moment of my life. So it's uh, always beautiful for me to revisit that. <clears throat> um. So let's, uh, is there, uh, as we draw this first part of the interview to a close, is there anything else you'd like to mention about the ways that the techniques in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika help to transform us? And, and maybe if you can just speak about what is the promise of that transformation? I think it's when the small realizations happen in life in very tiny increments at unexpected moments, you do the practices and some people do practice with expectation. The idea is simply to do without expectation and then all of a sudden something occurs in life, the light bulb goes on and you understand something so deeply that your it affects your nervous system and you get tears in your eyes. And at, at these tiny realizations about the inner beauty of 
a situation and it just comes by doing these practices from the Hatha Yoga Pradipika. Uh, you don't have to do a lot of complicated practices. You can just pick up one practice and as you do it continually, the inner unfoldment that occurs is so amazing, you can't put it into words. It has to be experienced to be understood. Well, thank you so much for your time and, and wisdom and for sharing with us um, a part of your own experience, what can be articulated. And we look forward to our next interview. Thank you very much. Hare Om.